turn over in your Bibles to uh, Philippians chapter 3. But uh, this morning we're in Philippians chapter 3, and I just want to read for us uh, verses 4 to 8. We're going to get through about the first two verses of that this morning. And, and um, in your outline there, you have a, an outline there before you in the celebration folder. And uh, I just titled this message, Who Are You Trying to Impress? Because a lot of times uh, in religious circles, we're always trying to impress somebody. Usually that's God. And uh, we're going to see here what Paul thinks of all that this morning. But uh, follow along as I read. Uh, uh, I'll pick up there in, in, in verse 1 and just read through verse 8. Make sure we keep our context. Um, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of do the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Jesus Christ, and have no confidence in the flesh. And then our text for this morning, verse 4, Though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so, Paul writes. Verse 5, Circumcise the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ my Lord, whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. This morning, as we look at this uh, section of, of Scripture together, uh, it's really a, a personal testimony. That's how I want you to look at it this morning. It's, it's if I came up to you and said, are you a Christian? And you said, yeah. I said, you know what, could you sit down and just write out your personal testimony? That's really what Paul is doing here. He's, he's writing out his personal testimony in a way that hopefully will make sense to us. And more importantly, will make sense to the church that he's writing to, the Philippians. And... Uh, he really had a, uh, a heart for the Philippian church, as we know, and we, we've, we've, we've studied that. But Paul really sees the matter of salvation from the viewpoint of a transaction, from something that happens in somebody's life. It's a point in time. It's somewhere. There's an exchange. And he even uses that kind of terminology here when he's talking about his own testimony. Um, I know some of you here are accountants and work with uh, large numbers of money and things like that. Uh, well, that's what you might be interested in this this morning because that's what Paul's talking about. He's really talking about accounting. And uh, it's interesting because you can even pick it up in the passage. If you look at verses 7 and 8, he says there, but the things that were gained to me, it means profit. And I want you to think of an Excel document with a ledger on it. And you have, a, a, you know, you have one, one row of gain and one, one row of loss, profit and loss. That's how it works. If you were an accountant, you would indicate that as the, the profit column. And then you notice there in verse 7, he says, but I've counted these things as loss for Christ. 
And that's also an accounting term in, in Greek. It's used in, in, in language outside of the Bible to speak specifically um, due to a business loss. In other words, you went out on a venture and you invested your money and you came up earned red. <laughs> and you lost your investment. And so the, the Apostle Paul here this morning is talking about a profit and loss. And then you notice even in verse 7 there as well, right in the middle, he says, I have counted loss for Christ. It means to add up the numbers at the end. You know, Excel does that pretty neat, doesn't it? You can put all the numbers in a row and you just click that little icon and, boom, and you know, adds them all up for you. That's, that's so, so cool. How they think of the olden days when they had to write everything out and even before they had calculators. I mean, you had to add everything up. It's incredible. Today we have computers that do all that for us. But that's what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about kind of making sure the account is correct. And he's talking about a business transaction that involves a profit column and a loss column. And there were certain things that he felt were in the profit column. He looked at it and he said, this is in the profit column. But you know what? There came a time in his life where he looked at that and he said, you know what? I have to switch it over to the loss column. It's not worth what I thought it was. And we all have that in our lives sometimes. We think something is just so dear and near to our heart kind of like when you buy that new car and you're out driving that new car and you're proud you have a new car and it's you know you enjoy it and you're careful where you park you park away from the you know the grocery store so nobody parks next to you because you don't want any dings in your new car kids can't eat in the new car because you can't put crumbs in their drinks or nothing because it's a new car we got to keep it new you got to keep that smell new you know and it's it's you look at it as something, boy, it's, it's very special to you. You counted it special because you spent a lot of money on it. You made an investment in it. Then as the years go by, we're just, hopefully this year, paying off our car. Our, quote, new car. That the grandkids eat in. And I find dried up raisins in the seats and animal crackers and all sorts of chips and they spill their juice. You look at the car and it's got dings in it and dents. I'm going, man, what happened? What happened to that new car smell? I even one day when I had it washed, I said, I want one of those new car smell. Those things, you know, that's supposed to make you smell like a new car. It made it smell gross. It didn't smell anything like a new car, you know. So I switched it to the whatever coconut or whatever it was. I like that one, vanilla. That's the, reminds me of the beach for some reason, so... But there are certain things in our lives that at a point in time we count as very special and near and dear to our hearts. But he says there, what, what, in verse 7, whatever things were profit, those things I have counted lost. In other words, I moved them from one column to the next. And that's where you have the transaction that Paul's talking about. So you've you got to remember, the Apostle Paul spent a lifetime accumulating spiritual profits, you might say and filling up the column of spiritual profit in his life. That banking column, he was doing everything he could to make sure that he had that column full of, of things that would profit him. So he thought. And that's what he says there in verse 9. If you just look at it, he says, And be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law. In other words, he had a righteousness that was from the law. But he had to trade it. He had to move it from the, the profit column to the loss column because he realized that that wasn't going to work. 
And so these, this column was filled up, this prophet column in the, in the life of the Apostle Paul was filled up with all sorts of things that he thought somehow was going to earn him spiritual favor with his God. And he did his best. And we're going to look at some of those things today. And I'm sure that they were very special to him. But all of a sudden, in one transaction, in the, in the kind of the instantaneously, he moves them from one column to the next, from the profit column to the loss column. And he said, everything that I thought was profit, now I count as loss. Not only that, I count it as rubbish. I count it as garbage, he says in verse 8. And he gives it all up for Christ. Well, that transaction, beloved, was salvation. That's what happened to the Apostle Paul. He was on a road one day and he had an encounter with the living Lord, the Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, who made a special visit from heaven just for him. And you remember the story as it's told. He was blinded and, and you know, the whole, whole thing. I mean, this was a guy who was out doing all sorts of things in the name of religion. We're going to look at some of those things today that he was doing. And he thought they were all good things. He wasn't doing them in a malicious way. He was doing them in a way that hopefully he could earn favor with God. And then he came into a confrontation with the living Christ and he realized that, you know what? My prophet column is sorely missing a lot of stuff. Now, all the stuff that I thought meant something to God really doesn't mean anything at all. And he was willing to give it all up. And he exchanged it. He exchanged that righteousness that he thought he had in his prophet column and he had to move it over because it could not be righteous enough for God. And he realized he couldn't earn his righteousness with God that only comes through faith. And that's really the message here of this entire passage. That's what the Apostle Paul is trying to tell us. He's, he's saying, I'm willing to give up trusting what was once valuable to me as an individual. And now I'm going to trust for my salvation in Christ and in Christ alone. And it's that exchange, that transformation of the heart that God does when he quickens somebody's heart to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's really a, a form of self-denial. We don't like to hear that word today because we live in a society that, hey, get all you can and, you know, doesn't matter how you do it, just get it. Uh, but Jesus said, deny yourself and follow me. He continually said that. Over and over and he said that. In other words, really what he's saying when you read those passages, when Jesus turns to somebody and says, you know, you need to deny yourself and follow me, what he's saying is, you know what, you've attained everything. Look at everything that you've attained. And you know what, you have to count it as useless. You have to count it as worthless. You have to be willing to walk away from it and follow me if you desire to. If you turn over to Matthew 13, I just want you to see how Jesus really described this very clearly for us, this whole idea of, of this, this reaching out to, to people and asking them to deny himself. Matthew chapter 13, look at verse 44. And this is from the lips of Jesus himself. Matthew 13, verse 44. He's telling a parable here. And he says this, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Now, the kingdom of heaven means 
you can kind of translate that in where, where God lives, the sphere of God. And there's only one way to get there, and that's through salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's, it's really talking about the kingdom of salvation, the kingdom of heaven, where there's salvation. So you could, you could really even do justice to the text and say, and salvation is like a treasure hidden in a field. Or we could say Christ the Savior is like a treasure hidden in the field. Now the idea is this, you have a man who's accumulated a lot of wealth. Obviously, I mean, it says there he's accumulated a certain profit, he's accumulated certain possessions, it says, but he stumbles across a treasure that is so valuable, he looks at everything he has and he says, you know what, I gotta have that treasure and I'm gonna give up everything for that treasure. That's the exchange that Paul's talking about. He's willing to sell everything he has, liquidate everything to gain that true treasure the treasure of salvation. In verse 45, same idea in another parable, he says, again, the kingdom of heaven or salvation is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and he bought it. Again, you have the same idea. Here's a man who, who's very wealthy, accumulated a lot of stuff, and he sees it all as worthless. He's willing to give it all away. For that one pearl that he discovered that was of great value. So he finds a treasure, he gives up all his possessions for the treasure. Man with the pearls gives up all his pearls for one pearl of great price. That's the exchange. And a lot of times we accumulate a lot of stuff in our lives. And sometimes we assume that that stuff has certain value attached to it. And it does, personally. But before God, it really doesn't mean anything. And so Paul was able to look at the stuff that he collected and said, you know what? This is rubbish. In comparison with Christ, this is nothing. There's one commentator who wrote this, talking about the Apostle Paul, the experience of the, the Apostle Paul. He says, he was a man with a rich religious nature. Know anybody like that? With a rich religious nature, capable of an infinite hunger for after God who passed from one stall to another amid the religions of the world seeking for the best but finally he came where the gem of heaven and earth and the sea and, and see the pearl of great price lay translucent and glistening he gladly sacrificed all that he had possessed to win that one pearl and that's really what Paul is saying here and that's what Jesus is saying that's what salvation is all about See, the attitude of a man when he comes to Christ is, you know what, I'll give up everything I have that I've depended on to earn favor with my God in order to know Christ. I've got to give it all up. You notice he uses the word rubbish there. Back in Philippians, verse, I think it's the end of verse 8 there. It's an interesting word. And it has the idea that uh, he's counting everything that was in the prophet column here as rubbish. You know, you hear people say, oh, rubbish, you know. Well, the word really uh, refers either to, <laughs> I don't know how else to say this, uh, human waste or to garbage thrown away. Something that's useless, something that's, you know, just waste, rejected, that's filth, refuse. Some Bibles translate it dung. 
Some Bibles translate it manure. Okay, when we had have our horses growing up, I remember one of the, the chores that we had was to clean out the stables. Because the horses would go to the bathroom and you had to clean out the old straw and bring in the new straw. You know, and we didn't take this stuff and pack it up and keep it for a rainy day. We threw it out. <laughs> threw it on the manure pile. And what Paul is saying is, you know what, I count everything in my profit column as rubbish. He didn't see anything that was useless after his encounter with Christ. And there's some things here listed as we look at verses uh, 5 and 6. They're pretty heavy-duty credentials. These aren't just, you know, petty little things that Paul was holding on to. These were pretty heavy-duty credentials. But you know what? Uh, he counts them as totally useless, as manure. See, a lot of times we think of, when, when people come to Christ, we think of uh, bad things in their life. We think of certain vices that people have. You know, drinking, smoking, you know, all the, all the sorts of things that the world does. All right? Sin, basically. That's what we think of, vices. And we think, well, yeah, that all has to be left behind. But you know what? A lot of times, religion can fall into that same, that same uh, category. You know, for a second, we wouldn't say, oh, yeah, you know, all the things I used to do before a Christian, I count those as loss. But what about all the religious things we used to do before we were Christian? All the things that we thought were earning favor with God. Do we look at those as rubbish? As garbage? You know, I'm here to tell you this morning, any man-made effort to gain salvation before a holy God is rubbish. It doesn't matter whether it's a, a, a evil work, a vice, or a religious effort. It doesn't make any difference. See, that's why Paul said that, he said, I was the chief of sinners. And he wasn't the chief of sinners because he lived a bad life. Paul was not a bad individual. He was very religious. He wasn't some lewd individual that was out living a, a life that dishonored God. He lived probably a very moral life because of his religious upbringing. But he sees even that religious upbringing and all that was a part of that, he sees it as rubbish before God. See, it's one thing to act immorally or to act in an evil manner or something and to think, well, yeah, God doesn't look good at that. It's something else to believe that God is so um, low that you can somehow earn his acceptance. That somehow something you do earns God's favor. One desecrates God when you act immorally or you, you act sinfully before God. The other really desecrates God even to a greater degree because it brings God down. It violates his law. One does the immorality. The other one assumes him to be less than what he is. It violates his very nature. And so religion is even a form of rubbish sometimes. And so in verse 4, Paul begins to give his, his personal testimony. And you say, well, why do you think he does that? Why does, why does he have to do that right here at this, at this point in Philippians? Now, you remember at the end of verse 3, we read that uh, earlier. He, he basically says that you shouldn't put any confidence in the flesh. He's, he's kind of contrasting those who truly have salvation and those who don't. And he says, there are certain individuals among you, the Judaizers, who are saying, you have to follow the law and you have to be circumcised. Those are the two things. 
If you do those two things, then you can be a Christian. Because then you're, you're truly part of the body. But if you don't do those two things, you know, just coming to Christ isn't good enough. And so what you had is you would have, like, Gentiles come to Christ. They would come to salvation. They would literally be saved. They would see that, that God put a new, new uh, heart, new desire, everything. And they'd, they'd come to certain churches where Paul would be teaching, and they'd be built up in their faith. And as soon as Paul left, the Judaizers would come into that church and say, hey, wait a minute, you, know, you think you're a Christian, and you think that you're part of this family of God, but let us tell you, you, you need to still be circumcised because that's what the law of God says back here in the Old Testament. And they would take these new believers and they would show them, and they didn't know. And they'd say, you also have to follow the law. That's what our forefathers taught us. And so there was a lot of confusion that began to develop. And that's why he says they're true Christians, those who have true circumcision. It's a spiritual circumcision. It's those who worship God in spirit, as we looked at last week. Their joy and their glory and their boasting is not in themselves. It's not in what they do or what they can accomplish, but it's in Christ. And he says at the end of verse 3, they don't put any confidence in the flesh. The true circumcision, those who truly knew, know Christ. It'd be like saying, you know, uh, if you had somebody come to church here and, and afterwards they started asking about Christ and, and they, 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 they said they came to know the Lord. They prayed with somebody and, and you know, afterwards we're over in the fellowship hall and, and people are coming up to them and they're saying, man, praise God, brother, you know, you came to Christ, that's great. And they're going, yeah, you know, I, I'm pretty proud of that. You know, I did it. I'm the one. You know, I'm, I'm going to live this life. You know, we'd say, whoa, wait a minute. What's wrong with this guy? This doesn't seem like kind of an attitude of a, of a broken, repentant heart. It seems kind of filled with pride. It seems kind of filled with the wrong intentions. And we'd have to stop him and say, wait a minute. This isn't about you. It's about Christ. You don't give yourself glory for your salvation. You give Christ glory. And that's why he says that, that the flesh provides nothing even when it acts religiously. And sometimes we forget that. Because even as Christians, sometimes we fall into the religious trap. Sunday comes, we go to church. And we go to church because, well, you're supposed to go to church on Sunday. That's what Christians do. So you come, you sing songs, you hear the message, you go home. Nothing's happened in your life. Nothing's changed. God hasn't touched you in any way. But in your mind, you've performed a religious act. And somehow, by doing that, you're closer to God as a result. That's very far from the truth. You can come to church 24-7. If you don't come with the right attitude, if you don't come with the willingness, the, the humility, the, the, the attitude that says, you know what, I'm here to worship, I'm here to serve, I'm here to give God the glory. You're not going to get anything out of it. You know? That's why we try to teach God's Word, because you know what, I don't, I don't have a lot of words to say other than what's here. I can't give you a special formula that's going to make your life go better or anything like that. And that's why, you know, when we come together on, on Sunday mornings, it's a celebration and worship service. It's not, you know, okay, get in line, okay, give you a shot of adrenaline and you're good for the week. That's not what it's about. See, we should be in the Word of God every day of the week. If you're just coming here on Sunday mornings to get pumped up, you're going to be, you know, you're just going to be mistaken. It's not going to work for you. Because I don't have anything, you know, anything other to say that you can't find out for yourself in God's Word. You know, we're just here to, to encourage one another. And we're all on the same, the same, you know, level. I mean, I have to 
stay in God's word just like you have to stay in God's word. It's not like I go to bed Saturday night, okay, God, put the sermon under my pillow, and I wake up Sunday morning, and there it is. Gee, this is wonderful how this works. No. You know, you have to be open to the Spirit. You have to say, okay, God, what do you, what do you want out of this? And God has to really show us all through His Word. But there are a lot of people in the world today, the world's filled with them, who live under the illusion, this very deceptive illusion, that somehow they can work their way to God. Somehow by the things they do, the religious duty, their ceremony, whatever they do, they're earning their, their right to be in God's presence. They can acquire somehow that privilege of eternal life. That's what confidence in the flesh is. That's what Paul's talking about. And you know what? He says, Paul, Paul says, truly here, true believers have none of that. They don't have any confidence in the flesh. And he doesn't want to mix anything up by drawing any conclusions that, that may lead people to think that they're, they're, you can have confidence in the flesh. And this, this Philippian church was assaulted by the Judaizers. They, that's all they had was confidence in the flesh. Flesh, because they were unbelievers. They just looked at their religious duty and they were telling everybody else that you have to do this too. That's why in verse 2 he says, beware of these people. He calls them dogs. It's not a nice thing to call a Jewish individual a dog. That's a, that's a vast insult. He calls them evil workers. He calls them the false circumcision or the mutilation. Because that's all their trust was, was in that, that little physical act of circumcision. And they thought if you did that, it didn't matter spiritually what was going on in your life. If you followed the law and were circumcised, that's good enough. And Paul had to go on and say, no, true Christians worship in the Spirit of God. We talked about that last week. They rejoice in Christ. They put no confidence in the flesh whatsoever. Well, this morning, he says, I mean, Paul makes it very clear here that we're not to have any confidence in the flesh at all. And you say, well, what are the Judaizers going to say about this? They're likely to say something when they came into the church and the, the, the believers, the new believers who were kind of mixed up because of the, the, uh, the message the Judaizers were sharing, they, they probably said, hey, you know what, we're not supposed to put, do this. We don't need this religious stuff that you're trying to sell us because Paul says we should put no confidence in the flesh. And they probably looked at them and said, well, you know what, I understand you're a Christian, um, but you don't understand the value of the Jewishness of, of your background. And, you know, there's certain privileges of Judaism. But because you're a Gentile Christian, and, and that they'd go down that road. And they'd make these people feel guilty, and pretty soon they're being circumcised, pretty soon they're trying to follow the law, and they're, they're trying to live a very frustrated life, very legalistic life. And they'd say, you know, what does Paul know? Who cares what Paul Paul's a Christian too. All you Christians are alike. What does he know about this? Why are you taking his advice? That's what these Judaizers would say to these new believers. And Paul finally got tired of it. And he said, you know what? I'm going to settle this once and for all. And so he begins in verse 4 to give his testimony. See, to the Gentile Christian, they could say those things because they weren't Jewish. So they always felt kind of lesser. You know, they always were put down. The Judaizers were able to, to make them feel inadequate. 
But Paul begins to share his testimony, and he begins to list his credentials. And the reason he, he does that is because they were attacking Paul. They were beginning to say, well, who's he? He's just a Christian too. And Paul begins to unfold for us some of his credentials. And he's not doing it in a way that would put Judaism down. He's not jealous of something that he doesn't have, like a Gentile would be. He's not depreciating the, the, the Jewishness that was, you know, there in those days. Not at all. He was just saying, you know what, that's not what it's about. It's not about a certain religion. It's about a relationship with the living God. And so he begins to list for us there. And, and the first thing he says, when these Judaizers basically would rear their ugly head and say, hey, wait a minute, you know, um, what about this, what about that? He begins in verse 4, and he begins to share his testimony. And he, he, he kind of has the idea that, you know what, this has nothing to do with human effort at all. And he, he just goes over five or seven points here, and we just kind of want to look at them briefly this morning. The first one, and I listed it for you there in your, in your outline, he wants them to understand that salvation is not by ritual. Salvation is not gained by ritual. Look at what he says in verse 5. He says, if anybody's going to, or in verse, uh, yeah, verse, verse 4, he says, though I ha might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks that he is confident in the flesh, I more so. And then he begins to share why. He's not bragging. He's just saying, hey, if you're going to put this, you know, confidence in your religious stuff on the table, then I'll bring mine out too. And he begins to list his credentials. Verse 5, he says, circumcise the eighth day. What was that? It was a ritual. They, they took circumcision down and they made it, rather than just a, a, a physical uh, sign on the body that was really indicative of an inward need, a spiritual need in somebody's life, that was the idea of circumcision, but they took it and they kind of perverted it, and all it was was this physical thing that was done to the body. And once it was done, they thought, hey, okay, now you're part of our club. And they had a certain way to do it. They had a certain time to do it. In Genesis, it tells us, when God instituted circumcision, he said, you know what? After the male child was born on the eighth day, it, he was supposed to be uh, circumcised on the eighth day. Well, what does Paul begin here? He says in verse 5, circumcise the eighth day. You want to list credentials? Let's start with number one. You're going to bring up the circumcision thing? Well, you know, don't, don't, don't bring it to me because I was circumcised the eighth day. So you can't hold that over my head like you do the Gentile believers because I did that. I fulfilled that. And you know what? It was just a silly symbol to them. That's all it was. And it's not too far from a lot of times people, what they're thinking today. Because salvation, what he's saying, is not by a ritual. You don't go through a ritual to get salvation. It's not a rite, it's not a ceremony, it's not a symbol, it's not by sacraments, uh, it's not by masses, it's not by routines or rituals, anything like that. Washings, baptisms, that's not how salvation comes. I mean, to be honest, I don't care if you're talking about Jewish symbols, Jewish sacraments, Jewish ordinances or rituals or ceremonies, or whether you're talking about the Roman Catholic ones, their rites and their rituals, or whether you're talking about the Protestant baptism, 
or the Protestant sacraments in the Lord's table or some other ritual, whether it's lighting candles or praying through beads, praying certain formulas. I'm here to tell you the ritual ceremonies don't bring salvation. And Paul wanted them to understand that. And he said, you know what? I've been through all this and I count it all as manure. <laughs> doesn't mean anything to me now. As far as salvation is concerned, what Paul is saying, that's useless. It's waste. It's garbage. Throw it out. It can't help you. What's the second thing he lists there in verse 5? He says, not only was I circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel or the nation of Israel. He says, you know what? Salvation is not only not by some ritual, but it's not by race either. If you want to talk about, you know, being part of, of Israel, well, well, let me tell you, I'm of the stock of Israel. In other words, I'm the real deal. That's what he was saying. See, a lot of times, back then, some of these Judaizers, they were Gentiles who converted over to Judaism. And some of those guys were the worst ones. And so Paul was saying, hey, don't talk to me about being part of the, the nation of Israel. You know, I am part of the nation of Israel. See, my blood. You guys who are out there telling these, these poor new believers that they have to jump through all these hoops. Some of you guys aren't even, you know, as much of Israel as I am. Because I'm of the stock of Israel. When you were part of the stock of Israel, you had certain rights, you had certain uh, benefits that were just passed on to you. They were God's chosen, beloved people. And the Word of God says that He loves them sovereignly. And so He says, I'm of the nation of Israel. Not all those Judaizers could claim that. And so Paul was saying here that I'm pure in terms of my Jewish heritage. There's no mixing going on. I'm a pure descent from God's people. And that's really a credential in their eyes. And what he's telling them really is that salvation is not by race. In other words, there's no religious virtue that can be gained by birth. See, there are people today that believe, well, you know, my mom and dad were Christians and I was raised in a Christian home. I've talked to individuals and said, well, you know, are you a Christian? Oh, yes. Well, why are you a Christian? Well, my mom and dad are Christians. Okay. That's nice. Why are you a Christian? Well, I was raised in a Christian home. All right. That's good to know. But when did you come to know Christ? Well, like I said, I was just raised in a Christian home. My mom and dad, have always, we've always been Christians. Big red flag goes off in my head when I hear that. Nothing you have to have, like we said a couple weeks ago, the, the second and the hour and the time and the place. Because some individuals don't have that. But you should definitely know in your heart of hearts, yeah, you know what, I know Christ. You're not holding on to your parents' salvation because you were raised in a, quote, Christian home. You know, they, people that believe that, and there are individuals that believe if you were raised in a Christian home, then you're saved. They affirm household salvation and they take the Philippians uh, story of the, the jailer and they twist it. And they say, well, he was saved and his whole household. And they assume because this is, if the parents were saved, well, the children are automatic. You know, they just pass through. 
kind of like when you're going on a plane and you have you're carrying kids under two years of age now they don't need ID they don't need all that stuff maybe if they're traveling internationally they do but not just to get on a plane and fly to here to Seattle why because they're attached to the parent now they go with the parents some of them don't even need a ticket because they sit with the parents it doesn't work that way in salvation you know you don't slide through based on your parents salvation but that's what some people assumed. And even, even in our day and age today, they engage in infant baptism, which is a form of, they believe, covenant identity. And they believe that infant baptism is how you identify a child as having been born into a covenant family or a covenant identity, household salvation. The parents are saved, so therefore all the children will be saved too. I'm here to tell you this morning, your religious family grants you no standing with God whatsoever. Zero. Doesn't matter to him. The fact that you were born into a Christian nation grants you no standing with God. So-called Christian nation. The fact that you were born into a, a Christian family, it doesn't matter. It's useless. It's garbage. It's rubbish. That's what Paul's saying. Thirdly, he says salvation is not by rank. He says salvation is not by rank. He says in verse 5, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, he's really going after him here. He's just bringing all his credentials. It's like he, he brings his resume and he just opens up on the table and says, hey, you want to talk about resumes? Look at mine. Of all the tribes, the most elite, there were two, Judah and Benjamin. We talk a lot about Judah because of the line of Judah comes the Messiah, but we can't forget about Benjamin. Benjamin was a very, very elite tribe of Israel. Benjamin, first of all, was the younger of two sons born to Rachel. You remember that? You remember the story in Genesis chapter 30 where Rachel, uh, uh, that Rachel was Jacob's favorite wife. And it made Benjamin a favorite child. In fact, he was the last, and thus, Basically, he was the baby of all and the baby of the beloved wife and, and, and tenderly beloved Benjamin. That's how he's always referred to. According to Genesis 35, Benjamin was one of the only sons of Jacob born in the promised land. So he had a very unique identity and title to that land. Furthermore, when they went to find a king, what tribe did they go to? They went to the tribe of Benjamin. They found Saul, 1 Samuel chapter 9. He gave to Benjamin, including the city of, of uh, gave a section to Benjamin, even, even the city of Jerusalem. So the holy city itself was in the territory of Benjamin. And Benjamin was a very, very noble tribe. And their territory was the, the, the place where the great city, the holy city Jerusalem was. It wasn't just some, some tribe that he's listening just for the, the fun of it. He's saying, hey, you know, you talk about, about uh, rank. Check this out. Very famous uh, man came out of the tribe of Benjamin. Remember Mordecai. I mean, it has a lot of history. Not all of them were good. There were, there were some 
people who were Benjamites that didn't do a lot of good things. And you can read about those in Scripture. But it was a very elite tribe. It wasn't perfect in any way. But all, all of those, you know, credentials, Paul brings to the table and he says, these are things that I've received by my inheritance. These were just given to me when I was born. There's no way he could be earning the circumcision on the eighth day. He's just an eight-year-old baby. There's no way that he could have said, I want to be born out of this nation. That's in God's hand. That's an inheritance. No way he could even be of the tribe of Benjamin. And then he shifts. And he begins with four. And he says, now let's move on to things that I've really achieved. Things that don't just come to me by inheritance, but things that come to me by achievement. And you look at the very first one, or the fourth one in the list, salvation is not by tradition. And you say, well, why do you put that under achievement? He says they're a Hebrew of the Hebrews. What's he talking about? Some commentators differ on this, but I really believe he's saying, I'm a Hebrew child of Hebrew parents. Because what would happen sometimes, they would be raised in a Hebrew family, and the kids would grow up, they'd rebel, they'd go off and, and intermarry and do all sorts of things. A lot of the Judaizers did that before their so-called commitment to religion and, and came over to Ju Judaism. And so it's, it's kind of a, a way of him saying, you know what, I was raised in a Christian home and now and I, I lived that out in my own personal life. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was not only raised in a, in a Hebrew home, but I practiced it personally. It wasn't just something my parents did. He maintained that tradition. And that's what he wanted them to know. It wasn't like some of them. See, some of them began to intermarry and they, they began, uh, they, they, were, they were called Hellenized Jews, kind of intermixed with the, the Greeks of the day. And he said, you know what, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. And he says, you know what God thought about all that? He said, I'm not impressed. God's not impressed by that. No manner of loyalty to your tradition, your religious background, your upbringing can save you. Doesn't matter what it is. It's all to be counted as rubbish. Maybe you were raised in a Catholic home, maybe you were raised in a Jewish home, maybe you were raised in a Protestant home, Lutheran, whatever. Maybe you're Lutheran because your parents were Lutheran. You know, you hear that. Oh, I'm Baptist. My dad was a Baptist, and we're all Baptists. That's all that matters. We're just Baptists. And you think, who cares? You think God cares? I mean, do you really think that God's looking down and saying, oh, the Baptist, yeah, oh, the, the Methodist? No, that's irrelevant to him. That's all the trappings of man-made religion. So he says it's, it's not according to tradition. The fifth thing there is salvation is not by religion. It's not by tradition, but it's also not by religion. He says in verse 5, as far as the Pharisee goes, <laughs> as to the law, a Pharisee. In other words, you know, there's, there's nobody better than a Pharisee when you're talking about the law. When it comes to law, Paul says, I was a Pharisee. In other words, I was in the top notch. I was at the highest level of religious achievement in Judaism. You can't get any higher than a Pharisee. And back then what happened is they began, they were pretty fundamentalists in their beliefs. They were very literal in their beliefs and they, they didn't have a lot of wiggle room so they became very legalistic in their lifestyle. And Paul is saying, you know what? I'm at the very top of this. 
very elite group of religious leaders of the day. The sixth thing there, and I mean, just one word, it doesn't matter about religion. I mean, that's, you know, people always say, you know, what do you do for the, oh, you know, I, uh, I'm a pastor in a church. No. Oh, you're religious. No, I'm not. What do you mean? I said, well, I'm not religious. Well, you said that you work in a church. I, said, I know, but I, I'm not religious. And they don't always get it right away, so they ask a question. I'll say, look, here's the difference. Okay, when you're talking about religion, you're talking about D.O., what you do. That's what matters. Everything you do, that's the trappings of a religion is they have their little list of things. You go to Mass, you do this, you do that, whatever it is. Say these prayers, come to Bible study. All these different religions have all their little list of things. But when you talk about a relationship with Christ, when you talk about true Christianity, you can describe it as D-O-N-E, what was done for you. You don't have to do anything. It's what was done on your behalf. That's where your faith and your trust is. It's not a performance-based religion. You know, Christianity is one of the only ones that is that way. That you're not judged on your own performance as far as salvation is concerned. Now, sure, those who are Christians and, and go to heaven one day, there'll be crowns and all that kind of stuff. That has nothing to do with your salvation. Your salvation is secure in the righteousness of Christ, not in your own righteousness. So God isn't impressed by our religions. The sixth thing there, God is not impressed... Salvation is not by sincerity. And look at what he says in verse 6. Paul just wants us to know this. He says, you know what? Concerning zeal, you Judaizers think that you're, you're zealous for your faith. He says, concerning, Je concerning zeal, I persecuted the church. I mean, how much more zeal, how much more passion do you want? Because you know what? As a Pharisee, he really honestly believed when people, you had this Christian sect out there, and they were, they were a danger to what he believed. See, this wasn't like a, uh, a maliciousness from Paul's heart. He wasn't out there just, you know, yeah, let's go slay some Christians. I mean, you know, today, that's how it's put in some things. Oh, he was this, this bad individual, and he was out there killing Christians. How bad? But you know what? In Paul's heart of hearts, I really believe he thought he was doing the right thing. In his mind, it would be like, you know what, when we, we look at this war in Iraq, and I don't know where you stand with all that, but when you look at the war in Iraq, and you hear people say like, yeah, the only terrorist is a dead terrorist. Okay, They either kill you, or we kill them. I mean, that's the bottom line. It's not a fun thing to talk about, but, but that's reality. And see, that's how Paul's mentality was. The only good Christian is a dead Christian. Not because he hated Christians. He just thought what they believed was threatening his religion. And he says, you know what? You talk about sincerity. You talk about passion. You talk about zeal. I persecuted the church. I killed those who came against my religion. That's pretty zealous. To a Jew, by the way, zeal was the, the single highest virtue in their religion. If you had zeal for it. In other words, they, they really thought that they loved their God so much that anything that would bring an offense to Him, they would give, do away with. 
There's kind of two sides to that coin. You think of zeal as the coin. One side is love and the other is hate. And either you love what I love or I'm going to hate what, 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 what you, know, you stand for because you're not with me. There's no wiggle room at all with that. And you can draw a very strong parallel to even what our president said about terrorist nations today. Either you're for us or against us. You know, you can't negotiate with these people. They, they slice your head off just soon look at you. Because they're deceived. What does that say to us? Paul was sincere. He was zealous for his God. And you know what? He said it didn't matter. He used to be in that prophet column. He had to look at his life when he came to Christ and said, you know what? This doesn't matter anymore. There's a lot of sincere people in the world. There's a lot of sincere religious people in the world. They make great effort through great sacrifice. They pay a lot of cost. They pay the price. They want to be pleasing to their God. They go to church. Some people every day. Some people several times a day. Many Catholics go to church every day. They go to Mass every day. People in religions pray certain prayers every day. Protestants go to church on the Lord's Day, fulfilling a function sometimes. Very sincere in their heart. They want to do what's right. But I'm just here to tell you this morning, God's not impressed by that. God doesn't look down and that's, Oh, you went to church today. I'm going to love you more. Your activity today makes me love you more. Paul's saying that's not how it works. It's not by ritual, it's not by race, it's not by rank, it's not by maintaining some tradition. And it doesn't come through religion. Salvation does not even come by sincerity. You can be very sincere, but if you drink poison, you're going to die. Salvation, lastly, is not by law. It's not by righteousness. You can say it's not by righteous works. Look at what he says in verse 6, just in closing. He says, I persecuted the church. And then he says, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, kind of just puts this on the end. <laughs> I was found blameless, by the way. What's he mean by that? Not that he was perfect, but for the most part, those who looked at the life of Paul before he was a believer as a Pharisee and all the things that went on in his life, the outside people looking at him said, this guy is, is blameless. They couldn't lift a candle to him. They couldn't say, yeah, you know, you're this, but you know, back here you're doing this and we see you doing No, Paul lived out his, his, his Jewish faith very real. And they couldn't hold a trans transgression against him. He lived according to the law. Now, he wasn't obviously sinless, and that's not what he's advocating here. He's not saying before I was saved, I was perfect, or he wouldn't have needed to be saved. Even in Romans 7, before his conversion, he was saying I was fighting sin on the inside, and when I came across the law of God, sin was in me, revived, and I died. He was saying I was in battle with sin. He's not denying that he, he, he was a sinner, but he was saying as far as his religious upbringing and everything that people looked at, his activity, boy, 
That's great. And what he's saying is, you know what? All that stuff doesn't matter. What he's saying is, I was fine. I, I did all these things. I inherited some of them. I achieved some of them. I filled up my profit column with all the things that somehow I thought would earn me salvation. And then came the day, Paul says, that I met Christ. And I found out, you know what? My righteousness is not my own. My own righteousness wasn't adequate compared to the holiness of God. But I realized that there was righteousness in Christ by grace that was given to me through faith. And all this other stuff that I thought was worth something, I just threw it out. And I hung on to that which really mattered. And that's why he says, whatever things were gained to me in verse 7, all that stuff in verse 5 and 6, I count as loss. They aren't a plus anymore. They're not a positive. They're a negative. Why? Because if you hang on to those things, beloved, they'll damn you. If you're holding on to any one of these things for your salvation, you're not going to make it. The only thing we need to hold on to for our salvation is the Lord Jesus Christ and His righteousness. That's why Paul says, I count all these things lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for whom I suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? Thought he had it all. Jesus pointed out he didn't. <laughs> Said, sell everything and come back. And he went away. Couldn't do it. You draw that parallel to the Apostle Paul who had everything. And when he met Christ, he gave it all up. That's what salvation is about. Dropping everything that you, you know to be of value to you and laying it at the foot of the cross. And saying, you know what, I'm not trusting in this stuff anymore. I'm going to trust in the righteousness of Christ. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Such a, a clear-cut testimony from the Apostle Paul. And when you moved in his life, Lord, he realized that his profit column was nothing. It came up zero before a righteous God. Lord, I thank you that you've given us the same opportunity. You've shown us again some of the, the rubbishness that's in our lives that we, we count as valuable. And really, in your eyes, we're just collecting manure. We need to lay it aside. We need to drop it. We need to turn to Christ and receive everything that you have for us. Lord, I pray this morning for the salvation of many who will sell all they have to buy that pearl, that treasure, Salvation in Christ by faith, by grace through faith in His perfect work on the cross. Thank You for the gift of salvation which we can receive as You offer it to us. And Lord, we pray that if there's any here this morning that don't know You, haven't trusted You for their salvation, I pray that You would reveal Yourself to them in a very real way, in a way that only You can, and show them their, their need of a Savior. And for us believers, I pray that we would always continue to exalt 
and glorify you. Not putting any confidence in our flesh, but hanging on to the righteousness of Christ. We thank you and we praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.